Please turn to me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the heart of the application section of this letter, and it's not only been very practical, but it's been very challenging. And the call is to rise to the challenge because this is who we are, and this is what we do, and love for Christ compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. And while no one here will be perfect this side of heaven, and while we will all struggle with sin and battle against sin until the day that we die, look, our aim is clear, our direction is clear, our love is clear, our lifestyle is clear, Christ, Christ. So we fight sin, and we battle for the God-honoring life, because this is who we are, and love compels us forward. Last time, Paul implored us to be wise, to redeem the precious time that we have left for the glory of God, and to do the will of God. Today, Paul continues with that thought, and please note that the will of God here is talking about the general will of God for every believer, talking about what God wants and what God desires for all of us, his children, who love him and who want to glorify him. Let's find out what Paul says next, and we'll begin in verse 17 just for context. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So again, the will of God here is what God desires for all of his children to pursue. And Paul has shown us many of those things already in the book of Ephesians. But here in verse 18, Paul gets specific about what that will is. First, he says, don't get drunk with wine. And that's a lead in for what comes next to be filled with the Spirit. Not the human Spirit, but the Holy Spirit. So the contrast here is that rather than being filled with wine so that you're under the influence of wine, Christians should be filled with the Holy Spirit and instead we should be under His influence. But first, don't get drunk with wine, which describes every kind of alcoholic beverage. Why did I say that? Some of you might look at me and say, don't get drunk with wine, but I can get drunk with rum or tequila. No, that come on. No, wine is mentioned specifically here because it was so prevalent in that day. But the clear call is to not get drunk at all with any kind of alcoholic beverage. Note that the Bible doesn't forbid all use of alcoholic beverages, but it does strongly warn against the dangers of alcohol, and it always condemns drunkenness. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And then as Proverbs twenty three twenty nine warns, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, who? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. 
Do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. So the warning here is clear, is it not? It's very clear. Don't linger long at the wine because it will bite you in the end if you do. So God's word clearly warns us about the dangers of alcohol, but it draws a line, a a strong line at drunkenness, which is clearly a sin. It's in the list of sins of the unsaved Gentiles in 1 Peter 4.3, and it's also condemned in Galatians 5.21, and it's clearly not something for us in Christ. What does it mean to be drunk? The word for drunk here means to have your faculties impaired by alcohol. As Martin Lloyd-Jones notes, alcohol isn't a stimulus, it's a depressant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers in the brain, for they are the first to be influenced and affected by alcohol. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. The better a man's control, the better a man he is. But drink is something which immediately gets rid of control, which isn't a good thing and which isn't a godly thing. So in context, instead of being wise and careful and circumspect, drinking too much alcohol does the opposite. Look what Paul adds. Don't get drunk with wine in which is dissipation. What's dissipation? Dissipation literally means that, it's really interesting, that which cannot be saved. It's a picture of having no hope of safety, and it describes the act of a person who has abandoned himself to reckless and to wasteful behavior. So here, Paul's saying that drunkenness is a reckless waste of all we have, and it's a reckless waste of all that we are. It's a strong word, isn't it? It's a strong warning. See, getting drunk is a waste, and nothing good comes from it, and it's sinful, Paul says. So take heed to yourself, because it can be a problem quickly if you're not careful. So don't get drunk with wine. It seems that Paul is now countering something that was very prevalent in his society at this time. See, Bacchus, also known as Dionysus, was a pagan god of wine, and it was common for festivals to be thrown in honor of Bacchus. And during those festivals, men and women would worship Bacchus by becoming drunk, where they would then sing, and then they would run wildly through the streets and the fields and the vineyards. That sounds kind of harmless, but it wasn't. It wasn't at all. It was wicked. It was evil. And what they did during these festivals was disgusting. These festivals, see, celebrated wretched sin because along with excessive drinking, they reveled in deep immorality and paganism. And I'm not going to go into detail about that. In fact, by getting drunk, the people not only wanted to rid themselves of care for a time, but they also wanted to induce communion with the false god that they were worshiping. But here, Paul's countering that and he says, hey, instead of that, you guys be filled with the Spirit. So this is a way for us in Christ to counteract the sins of society. They get drunk, but you get filled with the Spirit. They run uncontrolled through the streets in sinful wretchedness, but you you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there's a dramatic contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian, a sharp contrast, which is a very good thing. So don't get drunk, but second, be filled with the Spirit. Note that the comparison with being drunk and being filled with the Spirit 
ends with control. When you get drunk, alcohol controls you. (laughs) And when you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit controls you. And again, the analogy ends there. Now, why do I say this? Because people make way more out of this than they should. In some circles, people say that if you're really filled with the Spirit, then you're going to act like a drunk person. (laughs) They actually call it being drunk in the Spirit. But this is clearly not what Paul is saying here. I mean, come on. Being drunk is detrimental and destructive. But being filled with the Spirit produces clear thinking and godly wisdom and conduct which blesses those around us. Drunk people aren't wise. No. And they make, uh, they certainly don't make wise use of their money or their time or their body. And they aren't well pleasing to God in that moment. But spirit filled people are always fruitful and beneficial and edifying and pleasing to God. So the issue is control. Now remember, the spirit here is the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Godhead. The good news is that the Spirit of God indwells every true believer in the moment that he is saved. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And that's true for every Christian. That's also called the baptism of the Spirit, which happens normatively once at conversion, at true conversion, where again, God the Spirit comes and lives inside of you, the Christian, as your comforter and as your helper until glory. So what then does it mean to be filled with the Spirit when the Spirit already lives in you? It means this, that as Christians, we don't get more of the Spirit because every bit of Him already lives in us. That said, while we don't get more of the Spirit, look, The Spirit can get more of us when we surrender to Him and when we surrender to His leading in our lives. Look, be filled with the Spirit is a command for us. It's a command. It literally means be being kept filled with the Spirit. So it's something that's to occur continually in our lives, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment. And this is up to us to do as we live out our faith day by day. See, we can quench the Spirit and we can grieve the Spirit by sin or else we can fan Him into flame where He fills us up to the brim as we yield and as we surrender to Him and to His working in our lives. As Adrian Rogers said, not only must the Holy Spirit be in me as resident, but He needs to be in me as president. (laughs) He comes not only to abide, but to preside in us. The Holy Spirit who is dormant needs to be dominant. And the Holy Spirit who is present needs to be preeminent. And that's absolutely true. And so, to be filled with the Spirit implies freedom for the Spirit of God to occupy every part of our lives, guiding us and controlling us. See, see, the Spirit-filled Christian is the Spirit-controlled Christian talking about a person who consistently walks a life that's yielded to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit characterizes his or her life. And again, him being filled in you or quenched by you is up to you. It's up to you. So the question is, how can I be filled to the brim with the Spirit who already lives in me? It's very interesting to note that a parallel passage to this verse is Colossians 3.16. But there, look, here 
it says, if you're filled with the Spirit, then you're going to do this and this and this. But in Colossians 3, it gives the exact identical list, except that it doesn't say, if you're filled with the Spirit, but it says, if the Word of Christ indwells in you richly. And so we find that this, to be filled with the Spirit means that you will let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. All right, what does that mean? It means that you've got to be saturated with the Word. Right? It means that you've got to be saturated with His truth, which, pow- which is powerful, living, and active. That's the person who is also filled with the Spirit of God. So the question, here's a question. Can you be filled with the Spirit and be weak in the Word of God? No, no, no. The Spirit uses the means of the Word of God to do His mighty work in us and through us. So how then can I be continually filled to the brim with the Spirit who already lives in me? Well, sin less. (laughs) Sin less. Repent quickly when you do sin. Don't harbor it in your heart. Immerse yourself in the Word of God and obey what it says. That then will be a vessel that the Spirit will fill to the brim and use mightily and powerfully for His glory. Another way to say it is to simply yield to the Spirit. To constantly yield to the Spirit. Stop fighting Him. Too many of us, we're fighting the Spirit. Yield to Him. Stop holding on to that sin. Give it up. Let it go. Stop doing what you know you shouldn't do. And yield yourself to Him. The Holy Spirit loves to fill vessels like that. See? Now again, while He, the Holy Spirit, dwells within every believer, He can be grieved. And His activity within us can be quenched. And that's when we don't experience the fullness of the Spirit's working and uh, His full power in us and through us. And that's where I think many Christians reside. Partial filling. We harbor sin. We don't feast on the Word of God like we ought. We dwell in mediocrity and so on. No wonder we're so powerless. We tell the Spirit by our actions that we don't truly want His power or His help. See, sin, any harbored sin, unforgiveness, anger, greed, lust, pride, lying, laziness, drunkenness, any old sin will hinder the filling of the Holy Spirit. But obedience to God and immersing yourself in the Word of God is how the filling of the Spirit is maintained. And look, to obey Him, you have to know what He says. To obey Him, you have to be reminded of what He says to you regularly, daily, moment by moment. To obey Him, you have to be rebuked by Him regularly to get back on track. And again, that all comes by the Word of God. So filling comes when we're immersed in the Word and when we do it more and more and more for His glory. And it's a daily battle that we must never, ever, ever, ever stop pursuing. And please note this. That when you mess up, when you sin, we all sin. You be sure to immediately, right away, confess that sin to God, lay it at His feet, and then to renew your commitment to being Spirit-filled and to being Spirit-led. Never quit in this. Never be content with being half-filled. And never stop pursuing being a Spirit-filled man or woman until you die and go to glory. So, it's not about speaking in tongues which was a unique gifting for the early church. No, it's not about that. It's about glorifying God and bearing His fruit through your life until glory. And it's all very practical. And our call is to yield to Him so He can powerfully move in and through us more and more and more. 
One pastor gives the example of a man who bought a new car. He invites his friends over to see the flawless paint job and to sit on the soft seats of his new car. But everywhere he goes, he has to push his car, which is extremely exhausting. So rather than being a good thing, the car is really more of a burden to him. But then one day, someone introduces him to the ignition. He discovers that if you put the car in drive, it can surge forth in power. He said, why didn't somebody tell me about this before? Nobody could be that dumb, you say in response, unless unless that person is a Christian who doesn't understand the filling of the Holy Spirit and who regularly quenches him. And he's right. He's right. Think about this. When you got saved, you got God living in you. That is mind-boggling. And with him, you got divine power for the growing Christian life. In the book of Acts, God hasn't left you alone. In the book of Acts, those who were said to be filled with the Spirit showed forth that filling with joy, boldness, power for service, power for suffering, power to overcome the wicked one, power to give generously, power to preach the Word of God, and power to glorify and exalt Christ in fuller measure. And that power for the God-pleasing life is for all of us, and yet we are pushing the car instead of turning on the engine. But the Spirit will turn your drudgery into passion. Rather than making Christianity a burden, he will make it an empowering blessing to you if you let him. If you don't quench him. One preacher said that it's better for someone to be drunk than to not be filled with the Spirit. We say, no way, no way. But both of those things are devastating. They are. We say, at least I'm not a drunk. Yeah, but what about your your powerless, weak, mediocre, joyless, spirit-quenching, sin-harboring Christian walk that does nobody any good, especially you? See? Another said, I believe far more harm is done in our churches by people who are not spirit-filled than by people who are drunks. And I fear he's right. Because spirit-quenching, half-filled Christians aren't thriving and they aren't overcoming and they aren't filled with joy and boldness and power for service and the like and they look very much like the unsaved world around them. Please know this. God wants to fill you with His Spirit. He does. It's His desire to do so. He wants for you to live in the power, freedom, and victory that He alone can provide you. And if you've trusted Him for salvation through faith in Christ, His Spirit already lives in you. And now it's up to you to give Him all of you. Now it's up to you to bow to Him in full surrender and to do that every day. Stop fighting Him. Give it up. Is there any area of your life that's out of bounds to the Holy Spirit? That's the issue. Give it over. That sin, you let it go. See, to be filled with the Spirit means that there is a person who is completely occupying the temple, the sanctuary of your life, every room, every desk drawer, the key to every closet. Everything now belongs to Him. So, give Him the keys. (laughs) Give Him the keys. Turn the keys over to Him. And then, do it every day. And when you fall, confess, repent, and get on with it day by day by day. Surrender. Give Him control. And he will certainly fill you and work mightily in you and through you. So please, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The third way to do God's will is to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Verse 19. The word speak here literally means to use the voice to make a sound. And in context, 
the sound is a song. Others agree that this is the correct context, one of singing, using the voice to make noise, specifically to sing. Note that this is done to one another, so the context is one of corporate worship, of the gathering together of the church. As John MacArthur says, the first consequence of the spirit-filled life that Paul mentions isn't mountain-moving faith or an ecstatic spiritual experience or dynamic speaking ability or any other such thing. No, it is simply a heart that sings. That singing comes first from within, which we're going to see in a second, and then it expresses itself verbally in song, which is what we see here. One noted this, joyful, exuberant, heartfelt singing is one evidence that a church is spirit-filled. But lifeless, listless, apathetic worship is not worship at all. And he's right. Look, throughout history, God's people have been characterized by spiritual singing. It's an expression of our love and of our joy to him. The earliest recorded song in the Bible is the song of Moses. It's found in Exodus 15, 1 through 18. It was filled, the song was, with joy over what God had done in delivering them through the Red Sea, and so they sang to God. Another example is a song of Deborah, found in Judges 5, 1 through 31, which is a song that they sang after she led a great victory over Israel's enemies. Many of the psalms reflect on God's blessings, and they offer praise to God. In Psalm 18, David sings God praises, God's praises for 50 verses because the Lord had delivered him from the hand of Saul and from all his enemies. In 2 Chronicles 20, Israel was facing an imminent invasion by some powerful enemies. King Jehoshaphat called for a national prayer and fasting day. When the Lord promised victory through one of the prophets in the assembly, the king sent out singers before the army who sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing, the Lord sent ambushes against the enemy so that they began fighting each other. It's truly amazing. Many of the Psalms, which were sung, rehearsed God's attributes and his mighty deeds. From Nehemiah, if you remember, they had a special group of people who were set aside to sing. These singers dwelt in chambers by the temple, and their job was to sing to God, lead in singing to God, write songs to God, and teach others to sing to God in heartfelt worship and praise, and they did this day and night. The idea was this, that God has planted a song in my heart. I am full of love and worship for Him, and you know what? I just have to let it out. Now, singing for singing's sake isn't worship. And singing because you simply like to sing isn't necessarily worship either. But singing from a heart of love, a song that honors God, that greatly pleases God. I once heard a preacher say that dead men don't sing, but we who are alive today, spiritually speaking, we should certainly sing eagerly from the heart for His glory, words that honor Him and filled with passion and love. Remember when Paul and Silas were falsely accused and then wrongly beaten and thrown into prison and put in the stocks in Philippians, uh, in Philippi, in Acts 16? Remember what they did? What did they do? Yeah, they sang. They sang praises to God. Have you ever been to a beautiful place and you just can't help yourself? So you turn to a stranger and you say, hey, isn't this incredible? 
You have to say something because the praise completes the enjoyment. And that's why Christians sing. How could we not? We love Him so much for who He is and for what He's done for sinners like us that we must praise Him. We must give thanks to Him. And that's seen in many, many ways. And one of those ways is singing from the heart to God. And here, Paul is showing us that Spirit-filled people who are doing the will of God clearly sing to Him. Psalm 511. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 92, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 59, 16, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. You have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. You in distress, sing. Psalm 63, 7, you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. James five thirteen. is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms or praises to God. See, Paul mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs here. A psalm was a sacred song that was sung with musical accompaniment, and it was most likely referring to the psalms in the Old Testament. A hymn was a song of praise to God, a divine song, and it seems clear that there were some, if not many, New Testament passages that were early Christian hymns. And then spiritual songs encompassed a broad category of Christ-centered songs that expressed spiritual truths, thoughts, and feeling. So there's a variety of songs to be sung to our God by the people of God. And so we see here that spirit-filled people who are doing the will of God, what do they do? Well, one of the things they do is they overflow in song because they can't help it. Well, uh, I don't sing. Well, here, Paul says that spirit-filled people do sing. Deal with it what it says right look what paul says next fourth god's will for us is to sing and make melody in our hearts to god this is what spirit-filled people do so you sing of course but it begins in your heart and then it overflows out of your mouth what does this tell us it tells us that our worship is always to be an expression of a heart of love for god that we don't sing because we like to sing no we sing to god because we love our god And this is one way that we can glorify and honor our God. Not the only way, but one of the ways. But it begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, For Samuel 16, 7. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart, Proverbs 21, 2. Let your heart be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, and to keep his commandments as to this day, First Kings eight sixty one. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? So, First and foremost, God wants our hearts. He wants us to love Him from our hearts. He wants us to be captivated by Him, and we should be captivated by Him. He wants us to be lost in wonder, awe, and praise to Him. And He wants us to sing songs to Him, yes, but ones that first begin in the heart that then must be expressed with our voices. So I guess the question is, how's your heart? One noted, even as Christians, we will not have a true song in our hearts unless we're under the Spirit's control. 
It's impossible to sing for pride. It's possible to sing for pride, to sing for acclaim and fame, and to sing for money. But such singing is spiritless singing. A person who comes to worship while bitter towards God, angry with a loved one or a friend, harboring unforgiveness or any other sin, he is out of harmony with God's spirit, and he shouldn't participate in singing God's praises. Hypocrisy can neither praise nor please God. And he's absolutely right. The good news is that when our hearts are um, in love with and attuned to God and to His glory, look, a song wells up in our hearts that then gives expression with our lips. A person who doesn't have a song in his heart can sing from his heart or with his heart. No, he can only sing with his lips. But that shouldn't be the case with us in Christ. No, this is real. This is heartfelt. This is based on our love for Him. This wells up from within us, a song to Him, for Him, in the context of His people gathered together. So, has God put a song in your heart? He has if you're a Christian. He has if you're a Christian. Think about it. He made you alive. He forgave you and washed you clean. He saved you from wrath. He gave you a reason to live. He loves you. He himself sings over you. That's amazing. He died to save you. And if that doesn't put a song in your heart, then nothing will. And singing out loud to God and for his glory is an expression of the song that we already have inside of us. And sometimes, hey, it's good to let it out. When you're all alone, yes, but especially when we're gathered together to honor and worship God corporately. At the dedication of the first temple, all the musicians and singers made themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify God, and God was well pleased. And look, because the Lord was pleased with their heartfelt singing and worship, the house of the Lord was then filled with a cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God, and so their worship and singing pleased Him greatly. And we do the same when we lift our voices to Him in heartfelt worship and praise based on our love for Him. That pleases Him. Think about that. That, that pleases Him. That's what Spirit-filled worshipers who are in His will do. It's one of the things that we do. Fifth, we do God's will when we give thanks always. And this is true of Spirit-filled people too. That's the second time that Paul mentions the giving of thanks in this chapter. In 5.4 he said, rather the giving of thanks. And that's what we are to put on. That's what we are to be about. And then here he says, to give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm thankful. I'm already thankful. Paul would come back and say, for everything? For everything? That's the call. That's the will of God. That's what Spirit-filled Christians do. Look, Christians filled by the Holy Spirit give thanks to God the Father for all things on the basis of who Jesus is, God the Son, and what He's accomplished for us, His people, by the death and resurrection of Christ. So, because of Jesus and who He is and what He did, we, His people, can and should be thankful for everything. It goes to perspective and it focuses you on Him first. This takes us back to 4.32 and to 5.1. To God's forgiveness of us and to the fact that we are His dearly beloved children. And it's because of that that we can therefore give thanks. And if that is at the forefront of your mind and all you do as you live your day-by-day life as a Christian, then everything else just gets driven away. Now look, if Paula just said, give thanks for most things, 
it would have been more realistic and doable, right? I mean, I can give thanks often. I can give thanks for most things. But all things? Really? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't allow any exceptions here. The Greek word for always means always, constantly, in every situation, including our trials. The Greek word for all things means all things. And look, Paul did that. He even exalted in, in his trials, knowing that God was using them to produce perseverance, proven character, and hope. When he was illegally beaten, imprisoned, and put in the stocks, he sang. When he was imprisoned in Rome with a local believer slandering him, he wrote Philippians, Paul's joy letter. And it was from that same prison that he wrote these words here, always giving thanks for all things. Okay, but all things, really? All things. Does this mean that we're supposed to give thanks when an earthquake kills thousands of people? Or what about when someone we love is a victim of a horrible crime? Doesn't God hate sin? How can we thank Him for things like that? Well, we should never thank God for sin that He hates. Uh, We should hate that too. And Scripture clearly gives us a time to mourn and, and grieve over our tragedies. However, while we recognize that God is not the author of evil, we can thank Him that even evil is a part of the all things that He works together for the good of those of us who are His children. Also, He uses these trials to refine us and to prepare us for glory. And while we may not thank God for evil deeds or for things such as sickness or death or natural disaster, which are the results of the fall, we can thank Him in the midst of those things. In the midst of those trials, as we look to His promises and as we look to the hope of heaven. See, look, Thanksgiving in a time of trials reflects three things. One, remembrance of God's supply in the past. You think back over His faithfulness to you up to this point and you realize that His mercies have sustained you. He has been with you in every trial. Anybody? He never abandons or forsakes His children, even if we face persecution or death for His cause. Two, submission to God's sovereignty in the present. To thank God in the midst of a crisis or trial is to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I submit to Your sovereign purpose in this situation. I trust that You know what You're doing and will work all this together for good. Thank You, Lord. I do. I do trust You. Three, Trust in God's sufficiency for the future. A thankful heart rests on God's all-sufficiency, knowing that even though we don't see how He's going to do it, He will meet our every need as we cast ourselves on Him. He saved me. I have much to be thankful for already. I trust Him. Do we understand everything that happens? Do we understand everything that happens to us? No, we don't. But God does. And God knows what's best. And I'd rather be in His hands than my own hands. God cares for you as child. We, God's children, are God's concern. God is our caretaker. And we can trust Him in everything. Does that mean that bad things won't happen to us? Does that mean that we won't face great trial and great hardship in this life? Of course not. But it does mean that we are in God's good hands. That He is with us through it all. That He knows what's best for us even when we don't understand it. And that He, in His perfect sovereign wisdom, is working all this out for our eternal good even though we can't comprehend it. In that, in a God like that, we can be thankful. See, so we look beyond the junk and the sin and the trials and the hardships and we look to Him. 
And in him, we can give thanks in all things, in all circumstances, because we have him. All your anxieties, all your cares, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear. Never a friend like Jesus. See, with a father like this, whom we can go to and cry out to, Abba, Father. And with a Savior like Jesus, who died to rescue us from eternal hell, we can give thanks in all things. Oh yes, because he loves us. And he's with us through it all until we see him face to face. And I guess the question is, are you thankful for him? Are you thankful? One said, gratitude is what you feel when you've been given eyes to see that all of life is the work of a sovereign and gracious God. It's not for trifling and it's not for defiling. And he's absolutely right. Matthew Henry was once robbed. How can you possibly give thanks to God when you've been robbed? That night, Henry wrote this in his diary. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it wasn't much. Fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Perspective, see. Perspective. God loves a thankful Christian. And we're called to be thankful today. And we can be because we have Him. Because we have Him. This is His will for us. This is what Spirit-filled people do. The sixth way to do God's will as a Spirit-filled Christian is to submit to one another in the fear of God. Verse 21. In the Greek text, verses 18 through 21 form one long sentence. So mutual submission is the final result of how we can do the will of the Lord as Spirit-filled people. The key to this is the fear of the Lord. That because we fear the Lord and revere the Lord and stand in awe of the Lord and love the Lord, we will then submit to one another. The word submit means to line up under. The word is in the present tense, which speaks of a continual action. And the call is for us to willingly place ourselves under the authority of each other. What a calling. (laughs) Think what this would be like if we all truly did this to one another in the church context. The supreme model for this is Jesus. Think about that. He got himself on the night that he was betrayed. He washed the feet of his disciples. Think about that. He then said, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Or as Philippians 2.3 says, we are to esteem others as better than ourselves. Esteem means to consider, to regard, to count, or to reckon. It pictures one giving careful thought to something and not making a quick decision. The word implies a conscience, sure judgment, resting on the careful weighing of the facts. So I've done that. You are better than me. Think what that would do if we all had that attitude toward each other. A church where everyone's treated with godly dignity, kindness, humility, and and love and action, esteeming others as better, submitting to each other because we fear and revere and love Christ, it's incredible. Romans 12.10 says to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and to give preference to one another in honor, or as another translation says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the same idea as submitting to one another. What does it look like? Love, service, forgiveness, kindness, selflessness, gentleness, care, lowliness, humility, like Christ. It's a mark of a spirit-filled Christian who's doing the will of God. Is that a mark of you? 
Again, love and reverence for Christ undergirds this whole thing, right? I, I love him, and so this is how I live. This is how I act. And the question is, do you love him? Do you honor him? Do you revere him? Do you fear him? Adoniram Judson was born on August 9, 1788. He's remembered as the first significant missionary to Burma, as well as one of the very first missionaries from America to travel overseas. Judson married his wife Anne on February 5, 1812. Two weeks later, the newlyweds set sail for India. Their plans unexpectedly changed when problems from their visas in India forced them to settle in Burma. Once there, they faced a severe language barrier, studying the language for 12 hours a day for over three years in order to learn it. When they finally could communicate, their message met with relative indifference from the Burmese citizens, due in part to the prevalent Buddhism and also to the imperial death sentence that awaited anyone convicted of changing religions. After 12 years of work, Judson saw only 18 conversions. Beyond the constant threat of sickness and disease, Judson also faced serious dangers from the government. Suspected of being a spy during Burma's civil war, he was sent to a death prison prison where he was tortured. In all, he spent 17 months behind bars while his wife Anne did everything she could to secure his release. When they came for him, they burst into the Judson home, threw Judson on the ground in front of his wife, bound him with torture thongs, and dragged him off to the infamous vermin-ridden death prison of Ava. One said, 12 agonizing months later, Judson and Price, along with a small group of surviving Western prisoners, were marched overland, barefoot and sick, for six more months of misery in a primitive village near Mandalay. Of the British prisoners of war imprisoned with them, all but one died. The sufferings and brutalities of those 20 long months and days in prison, half-starved, iron-fettered, and sometimes trussed and suspended by his mangled feet with only his head and shoulders touching the ground. That's how they kept him at night, hanging with only head and shoulders touching the ground. He suffered greatly in prison. When he left for Burma, he would never again see his mom, his dad, or his brother in his earthly life. His wife who was with him was 23 She bore three children to Adoniram. All of them died on the mission field. All of them. The first baby, Nameless, was born dead just as they sailed from India to Burma. The second child, Roger, lived 17 months and died. The third, Maria, lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months and then died. Judson would lose two of his three wives and four of his other children, four of his children out there on the mission field. Over the years, others joined him in Burma and nearly all of them ended up dead because of the circumstances in Burma. As a husband, father, missionary, and friend, Judson truly knew what it was like to sacrifice and to suffer. Why? Why did he do it? Here's why. Because he loved God. He loved God. That's it. That changes everything. See, love for the Lord makes you do His will even when it's hard. And it makes you do all kinds of selfless things like what? Well, like give up all to be a missionary. Or this, submitting to one another for Christ's glory and honor. Or giving thanks or singing from the heart and out loud. See, I love him. I revere him. I fear him. So I fight sin. 
And I'm filled with a brim with the Spirit who lives in me and I repent often and and love compels me to do His will like we see here in today's passage. Lord, help us to be more like this as lovers of God because He is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, that You are a God worthy to be loved, to be feared, to be revered, to be honored, to be glorified in our lives. I pray that we would do that. And while we may not be called to go to the mission field and suffer for five decades, we can honor and glorify you right here, right now. This is your will for us. This is what spirit-filled men and women do. So help us to live these things out more and more in our lives for your glory, to battle sin, to pursue you, to be filled to the brim with the Spirit, to do your will, whatever that is. May we encourage one another in these things. Strengthen us now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.